Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, 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 and welcome to The Remnant. As you can tell already, probably, I am not Joe Goldberg. I'm Chris Steyerwald filling in uh, for the uh, El Capitan uh, of this podcast. But it is my great pleasure to be with you because I have been waiting to get weird about the 2022 midterm results uh, to, as the Jesuits would say, to, to uh, delve into the particular uh, on what happened in 2022 and why it happened that way and what really happened versus what do we think, what people think happened and how will that affect 2024 and how many people turned out and on and on and on. And so who would you ask to help you do something like that. I know who you would. You would ask my colleague, Rui Teixeira, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. It's true, but it's also true that he has, as I pop up his bio right here, it's also true that no political demographer in American, working in American politics today uh, has uh, changed the way we think about uh, political demography more than Rui, and uh, from his Emerging Democratic uh, Majority book, which every, as I'd like to joke, is the most, uh, only Francis Fukuyama can claim to have a more over-interpreted book uh, than Rui's book, uh, which Democrats clung to like a, a, a log, like a log in the ocean uh, as they were drowning after the two, 2004 election and, and took all the wrong lessons. Uh, he is the author of uh, the Liberal Patriot uh, Substack, he is the best, uh, and we are very lucky to have Rui to share with us today. Uh, welcome, friend. Delighted to be here. Let's hit it. Okay. <laughs> so the first question is, because I think of you really as a turnout guru. I know that was an earlier, yeah, part, of, earlier, I mean, was an earlier part of your work, but um, you, I think of you as a turnout guru. What was turnout like? Who showed up to vote and who didn't? Well, this is this is a matter of roiling controversy, uh, even as we speak. It does appear that, you know, this is a relatively high turnout midterm election, but it wasn't 2018 level, which was pretty impressive. Still, I mean, this was quite high. Um, but I think uh, one thing people are debating is who did turnout help? Um, and I think that, you know, I'm persuaded from looking at whatever what data is available that it probably was didn't particularly help the Democrats. I mean, if you look at the composition of the samples in the exit polls and vote cast, you got more Republicans than Democrats. You look at you know county level regressions and stuff like that. Uh, it's difficult to see a tsunami of Democratic turnout. Um, so, uh, if we're trying to understand why the Democrats did so well in this election, relatively speaking, turnout probably isn't the key. It's probably more about persuasion. Um, it's about a lot of the people who showed up to vote who we might normally have expected to vote Republican uh, or lean in that direction wound up voting uh, for the Democrats, as, of course, famously did a lot of independents. So high turnout, but not high turnout that really dis, uh, disadvantaged the Republican Party or advantaged the Democratic Party. It was just a very highly mobilized election uh, in terms of uh, the electorate responding to its signals and turning out. People cared about this election, albeit not quite as uh, high as in, as in 2018. So that's what I think. But it's early days, and we're still sifting through the data. And also, the youth turnout thing is a bit of a, I mean, a bit of a myth, I well, think. But that's, but that's always, always a myth. Isn't that, <laughs> that's, I, every two years, reliably, I get to read a bunch of stories. They're like, could younger voters? And I'm like, no, they, they won't. And, and 
thank God that young people have better things to do than <laughs> to be obsessed about politics. Let's go way back and then we'll come back to the present. People used to talk about uh, Obama Trump voters. Uh, and there, there was a thing. There was, so there's got to be millions. Basically, statistically, there have to be millions of these voters. And for a period of time, people in both parties tried to claim them and say why these people had done this. Now, I, did, I never went there because I assume that people who are persuadable voters are not that ideological and don't see the kinds of don't see the kinds of bright line distinctions that the partisans would like. A Republican couldn't imagine how you could vote for Obama and then vote for Trump, nor could a hardcore Democrat or Republican. But what is the universe of these kinds of persuadable voters? What is the universe in America today of people who are fluid enough in their in their ideation to be somebody who could vote for Barack Obama and Donald Trump and maybe Joe Biden? Who are they? Yeah, well, I think you're right that, um, you know, one thing that does mark them off typically is they're not as engaged uh, in politics as the people who reliably would vote Democratic or Republican, in fact, would consider doing nothing else under, you know, if they had a gun to their head. So, yeah, they they do um, not have as strong and, and sort of constrained partisan implications, right? I mean, all their views don't fit in one box or the other. They've got conflicting priorities and, and values and views, and they can be therefore persuaded to move from one side to the other, depending on the candidates available in the, in the political context. So yeah, it's not that crazy for people to vote for Barack Obama in 2012 and then vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and then vote for Joe Biden in 2020. I think a lot of these voters uh, felt fall into two buckets. One was white non-college voters, uh, very famously from 2012 to 2016. And then from 2016 to 2020, we found a lot of people wind up voting for Trump, who we wouldn't have expected to, had either sat out 2016 or voted for, for Hillary Clinton. Um, so uh, I just think it's a little hard for parties to wrap their minds around not only the median voter, but the median non-voter. <laughs> they, yeah. they don't really understand yeah. who this person is. They think that you know, the people who are out there who didn't vote in the last election are really just like the people who who did. Uh, it's just they didn't quite get the message or we didn't knock on their door and send them enough messages. But they're really just partisans in the waiting. But I think that's really incorrect. They're they're not partisans in the waiting. They're, you know, they're sort of conf confused, conflicted and not that involved people in the waiting. And it's possible to get them out to vote. But even if you do get them out to vote, they might not even vote the way you want. Like, again, Hispanics are a good example because all the data that we have from 2020 suggests that the people who showed up to vote in 2020 uh, responding to the mobilization activities of the parties uh, actually uh, were much more likely to vote Republican than the ones who would have turned out anyway, right? In other words, they're peripheral voters who were bought into the voting poll, and they are actually more conservative-leaning uh, than a lot of Democrats expected, and they gave more votes to Trump than was expected. It's remarkable to me that Republicans continue not to understand that the uh, the, the lower strata of voter propensities uh, are not solidly Democratic, right? So the Republican fear and the reason that Republicans screw up around turnout so often is that they believe that everybody who is a low propensity voter is a Democrat and that if they get to the polls because that's their their nightmare scenario, right, is urban center Democrats uh, running vans, taking people to low propensity voters to the polls, and that that's, that's who they are. Right. Crazy. It's been interesting to watch as Republicans have, I think, it's not fair to say Jim Crow 2.0, but certainly Republicans have been on a crusade to restrict, right? And some of it is just getting rid of uh, expansions that were undertaken during the pandemic. But the Republican approach to turnout still seems to be that more is bad, right? Um, and isn't that crazy for a party that says that its future lies with the white working class and uh, down, well, not just the white working class, but working class voters who are usually the lower propensity voters, right? Most non-voters are white working class. And that's particularly true in some very important states. So it is kind of nuts for people to worry about that that much and think it has these huge partisan implications. I mean, look what happened um, 
uh, you know, just as on the one side, Democrats, you know, were freaking out about the changes that were made in the Georgia voting laws. You know, that was Jim Crow 2.0 and they moved the MLB All-Star game and all this stuff. And it was all a lot of baloney in the sense that none of these changes are likely to make much of a difference to outcomes and to turnout. And then you look at the 2022 election when turnout was through the roof in Georgia and Warnock won by a point, blah, blah, blah. Um, It's just people don't get it. It, It's just tweaks to these voting procedures. I mean, it's not like people are sitting outside of the polls or, you know, like sitting outside, you know, like in the old days. In real Jim Crow, you would try to vote if you were a black person in the the South. It was just like, no, you're not on the rolls. You, You can't vote or. You're too late. We just closed the polls. That that we just <laughs> yeah, you just we just missed it. Just missed it. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. And these these minor changes of voting procedures. The Republicans have this tremendous faith will uh, suppress Democratic turnout, and and Democrats have the tremendous fear that it's going to suppress. Both are wrong. You know this Both stuff does okay. not matter that much. It's actually you know and boringly enough about who's running, how motivated are people to vote. Uh, what are the issues on the table and so on. And if people feel it's worth voting, by God, they'll figure out a way to vote, given today's, uh, you know, relative ease of voting in most states. As has famously been observed, it's easier to vote in Georgia than in New York. So, um, I mean, this, yeah. this, is, this is just a weird, you know, thing between the parties where they both misinterpret and misunderstand the American non-voter and misunderstand what gets people to, to go to the polls. A lot, a lot of it, I believe, is rooted to the uh, delegitimation uh, that's been going on in politics, where both sides say that the other side's majority, if they obtain one, is inherently illegitimate for X reason, right? Either it was uh, stolen uh, ballot machines uh, or it was Jim Crow 2.0, but the, the majority can't be legitimate. It can't be, and this is, of course, how you get, it's how you screw up a republic. You can't say, well, you beat us this time. And we'll be back. We'll see you next time. Uh, uh, you know, shame on us for losing to you stinkers and then come back in two years and try to win. And that's the that's the healthy thing. But I think when you have two parties. Right, that- well, one thing that's worth observing here, Chris, is that in the aftermath of this relatively bad election for the Republicans, uh, we expect to do way better. I mean, there has been very little mishigas around protesting voting results and, and that sort of thing. I mean, so. I mean, we should celebrate this. I mean, we have this uh, relatively close controversial election in many ways that, you know, tempers were running high and partisanship was through the roof. And yet almost nothing is happening. Carrie Lake has made some peeps about her, you know, almost certain loss in Arizona. But other than that, almost nobody said anything. So this is great. This is great. In fact, we're not on the verge of fascism. We should be like, you know, popping champagne corks here. The republic held. It was maybe never in as much danger as we thought. Maybe elections are back on their way to being legitimated. Who knows? Wouldn't that be a great thing? That would be that would be a nice change. No, I agree that I would. I was. I said at the at the end of the 20 or around after January 6th, at least um, that, you know, all I want out of the midterms is peace, right? All I, all, I don't care what you people do. All these partisans, they can do whatever they want to do. If we have peace and people can accept the results and the elections are thought to be fairly, uh, fairly conducted, then, then it's a win for everybody. I think we got that. And the other thing that we got, which, and I will not, I will not drag you too deeply into what Jonah would call rank punditry, but the, I love the verdict from the voters and the verdict from the voters was, eh, to both, <laughs> to both parties. They said, eh, not so hot. And Democrats obviously are feeling very good because they think that that, uh, I was talking to uh, um, a Democratic strategist who said, and that's how we snatched. I said, snatched what? Uh, A smaller defeat from the jaws of a larger defeat. I was like, okay, there you go. So it's uh, Democrats feel like they've won uh, because the losses were so small. And by the way, just as an aside, uh, for Elise Stefanik and the Republican leadership team in the House, have fun, right? Uh, with uh, with <laughs> right. two with with two with two seats to spare. Kevin McCarthy is going to uh, he's going to be jittery like Sylvester the Cat in those <laughs> cartoons, just coffee shaking out of his hands, fifty cigarettes in his mouth, like Good a luck. like a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> It's going to be going to be a lot of fun trying to govern with a three seat majority or whatever. But anyway, uh, Democrats are treating a smaller loss as a big win. 
And Republicans are, I, I guess you could classify it as um, soul searching. Most of it's just motivated reasoning, right? Uh, it's it's this person's fault. It's like, well, you were going to say that no matter what, uh, you know, in the, in the factionalism of the Republican Party. What are the right lessons to take away? What, what actually happened? Well, that's... Uh... You know, the gazillion dollar question and people are still arguing about this. But I mean, I do take your point that um, the voters verdict on the parties, not the candidates on the parties was pretty clear. They don't particularly like either one um, and don't think either one of them really is sort of in the mainstream wheelhouse. There was a bunch of questions asked about that and vote cast in the exit polls. They all show the same thing. You know, equal numbers of people think the parties are too extreme. Equal numbers of people think the party's supporters might be inclined to violence, which was kind of surprising, right? I mean, I forget exactly the question wording is, you know, which party, you know, do you think the Democrats uh, are doing too much to encourage violence? Do you think they're, and it's the same response. I mean, remarkable. Favorability about the same. In fact, in some polls, Republicans, at least nationwide, were a little bit higher, um, you know, Trump and Biden about equal low favorability ratings and so on and so forth. So people completely unenthusiastic about the parties. But as other polling has shown, when it came to candidates and as common sense would, would suggest and the data suggests, when you look at the kind of candidates who the Republicans wound up running in a lot of cases, uh, there was a, a difference in how sort of normie voters viewed them. The Republicans, I guess, as someone put it, it was... Um, you know, out of step versus out of their minds, right? So yeah, the, the out of their minds candidates seem to be uh, pretty heavily on the Republican side. Uh, and that was a lot due to the intervention of Trump and, and Trump adjacent people in terms of getting certain people nominated, uh, the kind of fealty that a lot of candidates felt they had to show toward Trump and his claims about 2020 and its general insanity. Um, and sort of it all became conflated, too, with fairly hardline pro-life positions as the Dobbs position, decision came down. So it was all a big mess uh, for Republican candidates. And it was pretty easy for the Democrats to run against those kind of candidates and beat them handily, even in states and in situations and in a national environment where the Republicans should have done much better. So to me, that's the big story. Republicans take what could have been a pretty favorable environment for them. They nominate a lot of really crappy candidates. Uh, you know, Dobbs' decision obviously uh, doesn't help. Um, and in the end, they wind up just super underperforming what they should have based on those, those fundamentals. But I think on the Democratic side, uh, you know, there is a tendency to overinterpret this as like a mandate. <laughs> <laughs> a mandate for, you know, the anti-MAGA Democrats, you know, huzzah forever. You know, we got them right where they want them. Bring on 2024. And as I wrote in the Wall Street Journal and some other places, I mean, it is ignoring the fundamental weaknesses the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's image has among normie voters, which, again, is really underscored by the uh, by the polls that came out. Uh, from the election that, you know, people, people detest the Republican Party, but they kind of detest you too. So maybe you want to pay some attention to like changing that, you know, making your party more attractive to your, to your average voter. But I think that, you know, I, I spend some time sifting through the, you know, sort of the Democratic and particularly left Democratic takes on the election. And it is remarkable, you know, how quickly people have lost interest if they had any in trying to do anything about the Democrats' ongoing problems with working-class voters and with, you know, cultural problems and so on. I mean, they're basically all shouting from the rooftops, we won. You know, our strategy worked. Republicans, you know, they really are a fascist party and a criminal conspiracy. And now the great American people understand that, and uh, we'll just sort of press the accelerator on that, and we won't change anything else, as Biden famously observed, uh, and we'll be great. So I think that's a big mistake, but I think that is the takeaway in a lot of sectors of the Democratic Party. Well, uh, and Biden did soften uh, later in, uh, I guess, talking to reporters at some other point. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to meet with like the sort of a de minimis uh, uh, expression of um, uh, bipartisan a, a willingness to participate, but not a not a, a, a very uh, a damp overture. Um, I wonder, 
So th- let's do an obvious question. Mm-hmm. Why don't politicians persuade like they used to? A, a layman certainly would look at the situation and say, we have a pretty divided country. But there's a lot of independent voters and they're pretty persuadable right now. They're dissatisfied with both parties. They're sort of up for grabs. Why doesn't, and I don't mean specifically Joseph Robinette Biden, but why doesn't Joe Biden and why don't politicians make a grab for those voters? What is, what is, what is the, the reason that people do not seem to act what would be not only seemingly in the national interest, but also in the interest of their own success? Well, the political marketplace doesn't necessarily clear at the right price. I mean, there's a problem with both parties is they aren't efficient vote maximizing machines. Obviously, that's one of their priorities, if not the main priority as a party. But uh, the the vast machine that constitutes each party, the various politicians, the factions and so on, uh, they aren't necessarily particularly rational. They can be quite ideological. They can be quite unattuned to the way the signals the voters are sending them. And they can have priorities that actually send them away from trying to appeal to that median voter. I mean, you know, Anthony Downs' economic theory of democracy sort of works as a very broad perspective on how parties might position themselves. But when it comes down to actually doing stuff election by election uh, and getting parties to move toward the center, it turns out to be a lot harder than you would think it would be if they were just looking at prices in the political marketplace and trying to, to maximize their return. Um, so, in other words, you have big factions of both the Democratic and Republican Party who make it very difficult for the party as a whole to move in the direction that might allow them to uh, capture that median voter. On the Republican side, you have the Trump. And, this, and just, just as an aside to that, before you do the Republicans, the sanction for losing a primary is the same as losing in general. You are equally out of office. You can ask Liz Cheney and Peter Meyer and a bunch of folks. Losing the prime, it's the same consequence. So voters, so uh, candidates, the the game is the, uh, pardon me for this uh, awful verb verbification. The uh, candidate is incented uh, to over to overinterpret the value of, or not overinterpret, to treat the value of primary voters, every individual primary voter, at a much 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 higher level than the larger general electorate, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, I think we'd add to that uh, social media donors and so on. There are a lot of things pushing, you know, typical Republican and Democratic uh, politicians in the direction of catering to a relatively narrow set of interests and a relatively a extreme word. point of view on uh, <laughs> point of view on a lot of issues that aren't really of that much interest to the average voter. So I think on both sides, you see this kind of dynamic pushing them out of the center. And making it difficult for now, you might argue, well, OK, that's the party as a whole. But why why don't, you know, brilliant entrepreneurs realize that they can take advantage of this inefficiency in the marketplace and step forward uh, and, and present a, a more plausible and appealing face to the center of the electorate? I mean, part of it is the primary problem. Part of it is people who people who exist in parties are susceptible to pressures from the parties as a whole. Uh, and. You know, just sometimes it just takes time for this kind of dynamic to develop. I mean, you could argue that on the Republican side, we are now starting to see this with DeSantis and so on, on how he's approaching things, um, that he might be the kind of politician who could take advantage of this inefficiency in the marketplace. On the Democratic side, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, someone like Josh Shapiro was interesting in Pennsylvania, how he ran on crime. I mean, that's definitely off the reservation as far as most Democrats are concerned. And yet he did extraordinarily well. Uh, You know, but Joseph R. Biden, who seems still likely to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, I I don't see him as like a brilliant entrepreneur is going to take advantage of this inefficiency (laughs) in the marketplace. He is a creature of the party. He's a creature of his staff. He's a creature of, you know, his own limited perceptions of what's really going on in the country. And I think he's unlikely to move in a direction to recapture the center and really improve that image of the Democratic Party to the point where they aren't seen as just as extreme and out of touch uh, as the other side. The, your piece in the Wall Street Journal, the headline is Democrats can't count on Trump in 2024. Uh, everyone should read it. It is excellent. Uh, here is uh, a, a, an assertion. Imagine a DeSantis ticket accompanied by saner, more competent Senate candidates. Are the Democrats prepared for that? I think not. You're right. But instead of addressing the problem or even admitting it exists, they're, 
counting on Mr. Trump to bail them out. This seems exceptionally foolish. It's also morally reprehensible. They're, they're trading a better chance of winning for the possibility that Mr. Trump might become president again. I couldn't have said it better myself. Wait a minute. I did say that. <laughs> now, that is a message that when I carry to Democrats, when I'm talking to Democrats and I talk about their, their culpability in what we're doing to the republic, right? Um, I get a huge snootful of, yeah, but the Republicans are worse. Right. How, how do we, um, as moral beings, delineate between politics ain't beanbag, you, you know, you do rough stuff to win elections, that's how it is, baby. That, which is true on that side, and then, and then when we are in uh, moral hazard. And, you know, obviously, if the Republican Party renominates Donald Trump after everything that Donald Trump has done. They deserve to lose. They deserve to lose, right? <laughs> yeah. They just like, it's it's wrong and they know it's wrong and they they sort of can't help themselves. But Democrats owe something here too, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as, uh, as everybody's mom told them, two wrongs don't make a right. So it don't work to say, oh, well, you know, you say that we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of indulging the extremes. You say we're turning up the temperature too much, you say uh, we're not, uh, you know, by being seemingly wanting Trump to run just so we'll win again, uh, you know, we're being too cynical. The other side's worse. It's always the other side's worse. Well, the fact the other side's worse doesn't mean, therefore, you get to be bad. <laughs> it should mean that if you want to uh, you want to deal with the other side, which is worse, you should be like really, really a lot, lot better. And you should try to correct whatever problems you have and shore up whatever weaknesses you have. seems to me that's a logical approach, but that isn't the approach that's typically taken. It's more like, I mean, it goes farther, Chris, in a sense, in saying the other side's worse. It's uh, it, in a way it comes, it frequently is, is conjoined with the idea that if you put any kind of focus on the way in which our side is bad, i.e. the Democrats, you are just, you know, this is just Fox News talking points. You're just like... That's right. Aid and comfort to the enemy. Carrying water for the other side. And you are, in a sense, now part of the problem. You are part of the semi-fascist cabal that wants to take over this country by even mentioning some of the things that are wrong with your own party. So I think this is, this is the, the sort of really toxic dynamic that's taken hold of a lot of democratic discourse where it becomes verboten to talk about the party's weaknesses uh, because that's both, uh, but that's both sidesism and both sidesism is in a sense very, you know, sort of Trump adjacent. So it's pretty weird, but that's where we are. And by the way, that's the kind of thinking that has brought Republicans to their low, their low ebb right now, because there was a long struggle, and you could date it to Pat Buchanan if you wanted to, but there was a long ideological or attitudinal struggle inside the Republican Party that mainstream Republicans mostly won, right, for a long time. And it was sort of the uh, Harlem Globetrotters versus the, what were they, the New Jersey, the Washington Generals? Yeah, okay. the, the, yeah Washington the, Generals, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The, the Patsy team that traveled with the Globetrotters for them to be. And so the Republican establishment say, ah, ha, ha, but it'll be Romney anyway, losers, ha, 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 ha. And they, they, they believed that they really had control. And then after Trump and the rise of these other candidates, any criticism of Trump, of course, among Republicans, was treated as, oh, you're trying to let the progressive, the uh, the cultural Marxists of the left uh, win and destroy the future. So a, a big part of this, what the Republicans have been through and what the Democrats are going through now is if you can make your own voters afraid enough about the consequences of the other side winning, then they can't, they can't ever punish you for being rotten yourself, right? Right. Example, 2022. <laughs> exactly. That, and, and I was I was going to say, and about Herschel Walker. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so so this is this is the kind of trap. Let's zoom ahead for a second. Okay. Past 2024, we'll come back, we'll talk more about that. But let's zoom way out into the future. Let's talk about what America looks like in, in its let's see, we're gonna hit 250 uh in what year is that? What, what year are we going to hit our 250th anniversary? Uh, that would be 2028, 2026. Wasn't it 7 to 1776? Isn't that what you, so si 
here, here, look at look at us. We're we're a couple of brilliant math guys uh, trying no, to figure no, out. No, no, I mean uh, it's like the <laughs> 1776, man. It's just 2026, right? 2026. Okay. So yeah, so it ain't that far away. So in 50 years, let's say, what will the what will America look like demographically? What will America look like politically in the roughest? What what are the Wait a minute. You're saying what's it going to look like in 2072, 2172? I'm, I'm saying I'm saying what are the demographic trends? I'm looking at a country that's going from north to south. I'm looking at a country that's going to be majority non-white or or, or am I uh, depending on how we describe we define non-white. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What 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 is a white person? The the battle over what constitutes a white dude? Uh, it will will go on. So, what are the trends that are shaping us out over these coming decades? What 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 direction is this country going demographically? Well, yeah, I mean, the political uh, you know sort of take on it, you know, is is a matter of and should be a matter of a lot of debate. But I mean, I think we know what the general trends are. We know that the white non-Hispanic population is going to steadily go down, and probably by the time we hit the twenty early twenty forties. White non-Hispanics will be less than the majority of the population. But really, that's being driven by the growth of Hispanics and the growth of, of Asians. Blacks are going to be relatively stable. And then if you take it even farther out than that, you get an even smaller white non-Hispanic percentage and an even larger Hispanic percentage. It's going to be that kind of a country in terms of the kind of race-ethnic distinctions we're, we're used to. It's actually going to be a somewhat older country over time as we go into the 2030s and 2040s. We probably continue to see population movement toward the so-called Sun Belt, um, though probably away from California. And the whitest, <laughs> the whitest state of the country will probably continue to be Vermont. So, uh, you know, uh, but I mean, actually, one interesting thing, if you I mean, this gets us into the weeds. But if one of the interesting things about looking at those our projections, we did this part of our States of Change project is even like really white places like Utah, and the Dakotas will actually get quite a bit more non-white, which is kind of interesting. Is that right? Yeah. So over time, Oklahoma will eventually become majority non-white, I think, before 2050. I'm remembering well, this right. They have a large Native American population, too. So, yeah, I mean, but what does all that mean politically? That's really what we're uh, debating about right now, and we should debate, because the idea this is an ex- inexorable demographic and democratic time bomb is certainly open to question based on recent trends we, we've seen. Um, the parties are going to actually have to contest, uh, you know, sort of the loyalties of a lot of these emerging constituencies as they get larger. And we're already seeing that happen, and nobody's got a lock on them, blah, blah, blah. So, um, but it does mean uh, both parties may have to change their approach to how they, they appeal to these kind of voters, both Democrats and Republicans. That's been my rap for quite a while. And I think what we've seen in the last couple elections simply underscores that neither party has a lock on these groups. There's a pretty high correlation uh, between voter age and partisanship. Uh, Younger people in places tend to be more Democratic and older people in places tend to be more Republican. Um, Part of what I have observed is, and I, I always talk about how the population of Metro Detroit, Michigan, decreased by a million people from 2000 to 2010. Uh, Many of those went on to the great assembly line in the sky, but uh, a a lot of them were the most desirable workers because they're mobile. They can go, they're young, they can pick up and they can move to Texas, they can move to Georgia, they can move to Florida, they can go to Arizona. Whereas uh, older, older folks who have kids and who have other considerations, it's harder for them to move. Is it, no, not is it, how much of an oversimplification is it to, to think about what's happened politically and demographic happening politically and demographically in the country is that the southern tier of the country is getting younger because they're having more kids. There is immigration as a factor, but it's they're they're younger, they're growing. Uh, you know, Utah is uh, you mentioned Utah uh, highest population growth, lowest median age, uh, and so you have a young a younger southern tier and an older whiter northern tier. Uh, and that the state that plays the reason that states like Ohio to I use this to explain why is Ohio getting more Democratic or why is Arizona getting more Democratic and Ohio is getting more Republican? How much how much water does my crackpot theory hold? 
Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't pour too much water into it, I guess. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is, uh, I mean, is really over. I mean, whatever age effect there is there is really overwhelmed by other factors, I think, um, particularly the movement of white college educated voters in places like Arizona toward the Democrats, the movement of those kind of voters generally and sort of fast growing suburbs in, in the South has had a big effect on, on politics. Um, so it's, it's less that they're young and more sort of how educated and cosmopolitan they are and how their views may be different than what voters in those states used to be. So I, the economic success of places like Atlanta, Austin, uh, Phoenix, Nashville. Right. It attracts it attracts a certain kind of I mean, you can't generate that much variance just looking at the views of immigrant you know, sort of people, migrants coming into a state. But I mean, yeah, there is a tendency for uh, these voters, people who are attracted to those places to have different points of view and be somewhat more liberal than the people who were there to begin with. We see this in a lot of different places. You see it in the Northern Virginia suburbs. You see it all over the place. Um, you know, some people have gone pretty far with that and called it the big sword, as Bill Bishop did. But uh, again, I think we have to be cautious about how much of the variance we try to explain on that basis. But um, something's going on there. Uh, and it all melts together into something that is uh, definitely changing the politics of those of those uh, of those places. I mean, actually, one thing uh, since you got me thinking about you know far uh, changes in the future demographically, and I would also add economically. I mean, one thing that really interacts with the demographic changes is the economic changes, um, where the most dynamic and fast growing areas of the country uh, actually are tend to be these metro areas where you know sort of for example, if you look at um, what percentage of the nation's GDP was captured by, uh, you know, the Clinton vote or the, uh, or the Biden vote in 2020. I mean, it's like astronomically high compared to the, you know, the, got a, the number of votes wasn't that different, but it's just the people, the, the vote share of the Democrats reflects more the growing and economically strong areas of the country. And the, the vote share of the Republicans reflects more the declining and not growing so fast and not growing at all areas of the country. And I think that makes a big difference. If we look into the future and those trends continue, that is the kind of thing that could really enhance this uh, brutal polarization uh, between the parties and some of these geographic trends we've seen. Um, conversely, if anything could sort of sand off the rough edges of this polarization, it would be a more broadly distributed and less regionally unequal pattern of economic growth. Because these are the things that are really reinforcing resentments in a lot of areas of the country. And also the other side of it is, you know, who gives a crap about people in flyover country attitude of a lot of people in liberal cosmopolitan metropolises. Sadly, the coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, exacerbated this, that the people, people, country people have always thought city people are bad. Uh, and <laughs> that, that country people say that, and this, and this will take you back throughout from, from the first time that there was a village of 300 people, people who lived outside are like those city slickers. They're, they're fan. They think they're fancy with their buckets for water. Um, so there's always been the city mice and the country mice and the city mice think that the country mice are, uh, backward and all of that stuff. And they feel superior. The, the valence of that being so highly partisan now, and I was thinking about this as it relates to Minnesota. Minnesota and Wisconsin used to be politically fascinating because unlike most of the country, where the further you get from cities, the more Republican it gets, in those states with the old Democratic Farmer Labor Party and the, the rule-following Scandinavian, the Hubert Humphrey enthusiasts uh, of rural Minnesota and Wisconsin, there were... There were plenty uh, in the American South and in the Plains and the Upper Midwest, there were plenty of rural Democrats uh, and there were plenty of urban Republicans, right? There were Rockefeller Republicans. There were, you know, cities, big cities had Republican. Fio, Fiorello, LaGuardia was a Republican. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there was partisanship was not as closely linked, it seems, to geographic, the type of place and geographical location. Um, and I, do you see that as I, oh, maybe I'll just say, mm -hmm. I see that as, as a real intensifier of these resentments that you describe because it's, it, it's, it's multi, it's partisanship multiplied, uh, by, uh, clannishness, right? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, city mice have always, 
you know, been different than country mice, maybe look down on them some, but back when city mice and country mice were in the same party <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, a given party like the Democrats or the Republic had Democrats, you know, non-trivially depended on country mice for their uh, political uh, benefits, for their political coalition, uh, the country mice start slipping away uh, and the city mice get a bigger and bigger part of your coalition. And those city mice go to school and they become ever more educated and ever more cosmopolitan. They look down even more in their country mice. And then when the country mice wind up voting for Donald Trump in 2016, that is just proof. It's because they're racist mice. They're racist exactly. mice. They're xenophobic <laughs> mice. Exactly. Those mice exactly. are no exactly. good. <laughs> we don't need them. We, we don't want any mice. We knew it all we along. Don't know. That's right. We knew so, it all along. So, yeah, I think this, this mutually reinforcing negative feedback loop, uh, you know, for the Democrats, for example, or for the Republicans on, on their side as well, um, breeds a, a, a kind of contempt for the people who aren't in your coalition, uh, and in the you know certainly in the Democrats' case, you have this fairly stark city mice, country mice, uh, you know sort of bifurcation, which also has economic reflects economic trends as well as I was just mentioning, and this is all not good, <laughs> not good for the country, not good for the party. Um, you know, as as uh, our colleague Yuval Levin has pointed out, and you know you and I have pointed out in different contexts, neither party seems very serious about how to develop a broad, you know, strong majority coalition that brings, you know, as many city and country mice together as, as mm-hmm. can be done uh, and actually, uh, you know, sort of able to implement their agenda at scale and sort of calm down the country and have a bit of a dominant coalition instead of the ping pong elections we have. Neither party is particularly serious about it. And part of the reason is, you know, the city mice uh, in the Democratic Party just can't figure out uh, how to really reach the country mice? Not sure they want to. Conversely, the I suppose the uh, you know the small town and and rural uh, mice in the Republican Party uh, can't uh, sort of bring themselves to think how they can reach more of those urban and suburban uh, city mice. So you know there you are. Republicans have had little problem till now mainstreaming the rural populist white working class voter well we'll call them harley davidson republicans they have had uh no no problem mainstreaming the or, or no resist little resistance to mainstreaming them uh whereas democrats challenge is the other side which are people whose parents would have been republicans or may have been republicans themselves republican leaners in the suburbs uh, this is the the kemp uh, Warnock voter, you know, uh, in Georgia. This is the uh, Shapiro Oz voter uh, in Pennsylvania. And in states like Georgia and states like Arizona, you can see the Democratic opportunity if they can find a way to get these college educated, more affluent, I, you know, the Eisenhower Coalition for Democrats, uh, um, voters of color, and then suburbanites. Democrats seem to be struggling more with with onboarding these these persuadable suburbanites because of the conflict between a very radical progressive base and the and, and the fuzzy uh, middle aged person concerns uh, that these voters have like crime, school taxes, blah 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 the, the stuff that those Clinton kind of Bill Clinton kind of voters vote uh, vote on. True. Well, I mean, not only do they have trouble doing as well among these kinds of voters as they should. I mean, obviously, they still have a problem with uh, Harley Davidson voters. Right. I mean, that uh, to the extent the Democrats want to develop a stronger coalition, they do have to reach not only consolidate these suburban, more educated voters, but actually do significantly better among these white working class voters, especially in exurban, small town and rural America. So. You know, it's uh, in a way the reflections of the same problem. You could argue that uh, the difficulty of the Democratic Party in reaching these different types of voters reflects their the ways in which the Democratic Party has moved away from the center in a lot of important ways uh, and is too dominated by the sort of liberal elites who tend to run the party, uh, who tend to control the party's image, who tend to define the party's image. Um, and if you are serious about appealing to those different buckets of voters in the medium term, you have to figure out a way to have a more favorable image among them and make a better offer to them about how you're going to improve their lives and make it better on a day-to-day basis. 
Um, and I think that's that's a big challenge for the Democrats. And as to get back to something we've been you know, talking about, uh, you know, it's a little bit makes the party kind of lazy that it seems to think it can rely on how awful the other side is. I mean, don't talk to us about, you know, how we're going to make your lives better or how, you know, we really do reflect your values. Look at the other guys. I mean, they're completely insane. You don't want these people. You don't want these people running your state or your country. Psychotically negative partisanship, the flight 93 election kind of uh, uh, attitude sets the bar way, way too low for the home team, right? Uh, if, if the other guys are literally trying to destroy America. Right, then there's uh, then, what more need be said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, why, why, why are we even having this discussion? Okay, let's close with this. Uh, in your Wall Street Journal piece, um, Democrats can't count on Donald Trump in 2024. You talk about how, and I, I think this is true, very true, that what happened last week for Republicans could be uh, in the medium to long term quite good for the party if it causes Republicans to say, whoa, 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 this was dumb. Why did, why, why did we behave so irrationally? Why don't we have 54 seats in the Senate, right? Because they could have with Chris Sununu in New Hampshire and uh, Doug Ducey in Arizona. You got two more, you bring, bring two more uh, Republicans into the Senate and Georgia and Pennsylvania, you can see how higher quality candidates would have made it, would have made a substantial difference. But anyway, Republicans might take that lesson into 2024. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see in the uh, mortal combat that's about to take place. Uh, and we're recording this on Tuesday morning uh, after the red wedding takes place at the uh, Republican leadership uh, 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 elections in Washington today. Um, we'll see uh, whether the Problem solvers caucus kind of guys or the freedom caucus kinds of guys uh, have have their way on the Republican side, but you can certainly see a path how normal kind of Republicans, and by the way, that includes very conservative candidates, uh, just who behave normally. Uh, I would point to like Ted Budd in North Carolina, very conservative cat in a not that Republican state, uh, the state that was basically tied in twenty twenty. He did fine. Marco Rubio did very conservative people did fine. Uh, but very weird people. They did less fine. So yeah. there's a chance. Yeah, there's a chance Republicans are going to take some of these lessons going into their 2024 cycle. What are Democrats going to? What? How? How? How will Democrats walk into this? Do you see? First of all, do you see Biden as certain to run or almost certain to run? And and what does that landscape look like? Yeah, I mean, I do see Biden as almost certain to run. I mean, I think that. Uh, if there was, it would have enhanced the probability that he might step aside if the Democrats had gotten their clock clean uh, in this election. Since they did not, and it's being touted as, in some ways, it was an historically good midterm election for the president's party, I think that Biden's conclusion for this is what I'm doing is working. The, people, the only people who didn't vote for us is they didn't hear about all the great things we've done. You know, so, so what's the problem, man? And I think he would love to run again. I mean, I think what could stand in his way is is some sort of obvious health problem but i think barring that i don't i don't see i don't think anyone's going to challenge him if he decides in a serious way if he decides to run again so uh it's the so opposite like he, problem he might... of the republic republicans are in a situation they might in fact wind up with a different and much better candidate because of these results if it increases the probability someone like DeSantis rather than trump will be the nominee with the the democrats it's biden uh, you know, all the way at this point. I mean, if there was any hope of replacing him with someone better, and that was always a dicey proposition because instead of, you know, Jared Polis, you might get uh, Kamala Harris. Um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that in a way you could, and I think this is what you're getting at, uh, it's a little bit better for Republicans, you know, changing their tune than for Democrats changing their tune. And we assume that both parties need to change their tune, then uh, it's advantage Republicans in an odd sort of odd sort of way. Now, you and I can both think of a gazillion ways in which, you know, DeSantis doesn't get the nomination and Trump sure, Trump sure, sure. powers through. I mean, is uh, you know, this is a very weird party, a weird time, and he's still got a lot of supporters, and he's friggin' crazy. You just never know what he's going to do. So, um, uh, but that's I think a not unreasonable way to look at 
sort of how these results play into, uh, you know, the 2024 cycle, which now stares us into the, in the face. <laughs> As we stare into the, into the gaping maw of the 2024 cycle that will, that will swallow us soon. The, so the Lovecraftian uh, maw <laughs> of the 2024 election. <laughs> that consumes both my city and country. Um, okay. So you think Biden doesn't get, if present trends continue, Biden doesn't draw a serious challenge. He gets maybe some unserious challengers. Tulsi! Tulsi Gabbard rejoins the Democratic Party to run against him or something. Tulsi forever. Exactly. If we get a Biden-Trump again, I know there are efforts for ballot access for some sort of a third party. People, uh, There's a lot of buzz in Washington about a Joe Manchin, Mm -hmm. Condoleezza Rice uh, ticket uh, for the no-labels crowd. Um, If it's Biden-Trump again... What are the chances for a, if you'll pardon the term, a third way? Very little, I'd say. I mean, I think if it's Biden, Trump, everybody's going to retreat to their corners. I think a, you know, third party ticket would probably on net help the Republicans and I, you know, help Trump in this scenario like this. So I would think people wouldn't do it, or if it was done, they wouldn't take it too seriously. Uh, no, I think that a Biden Trump rematch is just negative, negative partisanship through the roof. And I think that, uh, you know, I think actually it enhances, as we implied, it would enhance the probability that Democrats would win a second term, uh, you know, for their party, I mean, in, in a second term for Biden. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost hate to think about it, but let's face it, it could, it could happen that we could have this rematch. And if it's a rematch, I'll be candid. I'd rather have Biden elected again than, than Trump, who I detest, and it's a true danger to the republic. Uh, so, um, you know, but let's hope it, the, the choice isn't quite that grim. Let's hope it's <laughs> Biden versus someone a little bit better so we could have more of an interesting discussion about the future of our country and a better choice for the honest workers and peasants of America. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Any uh, any podcast that can go can can scan across 150 years of the political past into the political future. Use the phrase "Lovecraftian maw" uh, and do it all in good humor is a good one. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for making time to do this today. Oh, it's a lot of fun, Chris. You're the be- you're the best as always. And you gentle readers, listeners, whoever you people are, uh, Jonah will be back uh, and he will he will be here for you. And in the meantime, uh, you should have a great time. Thanks for being with us today. And I guess I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.